and welcome to episode 9 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. This week I'm joined by Bevan Anderson from Avsoft, the founder and creator of Avplan EFB. EFB stands for Electronic Flight Bag, and it's essentially an app that gives you everything you need to plan a flight. We talk about how he came up with the idea for Avplan, how it's changed and developed over the years, and how he sees the future of digital technology in the cockpit. Thanks again for all your support. We've almost cracked a thousand followers on Facebook. So don't forget to follow us there for all the latest updates, as well as subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcast app. Now, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hi, Bevan. Welcome to Up and Away. Oh, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Thanks for coming on. So I'd like to start the podcast by asking, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? So my journey in aviation started in, uh, well, my flight training started in 1989 when I finished school, high school. Um, prior to that, I had family friend who used to take me flying in um, bonanzas and so on, um, and I was lucky enough also to go flying in a Bell 206 um, from professional helicopter services and uh, yeah, that sort of really piqued my uh, interest in in sort of aviation and uh, yeah a few jump seat rides in aircraft um, you know in the late 80s sort of sort of indicated to me that this aviation thing was something I needed to to get into a, you know my my bedroom walls were covered in pictures of aeroplanes, you know, the, the centerfold from Australian aviation. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, used to waste a lot of time and money building model aeroplanes and all that sort of rubbish. So it's always been um, the thing that really sort of I thought I'd do for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, so I started started flying um Warriors at Moravan Airport in 1989. So um, went solo after about six or seven hours. That's cool. And uh, got my restricted license, as it was called then, sort of in sort of February of 1990. I then started university and worked on my PPL that year through first year, and uh, got that sort of late in the in the year. Um, and then over the next few years, as I sort of kept studying and I worked at uni and I uh, got my night rating, commercial license and my instrument rating. And along sort of I think near the end of that, I found that I actually had this condition with my eyes, um, a thing called keratoconus, which is a cone shaping of the corneas. Oh, right. And it's something that just came up within a medical so within a year it sort of started to make itself apparent and uh, if it kept sort of progressing I could get to a point in my early 30s where I wouldn't be able to hold a, a licence. So because of that I kept doing sort of what I was doing to pay for the flying which was IT work and um, so I ended up doing um, IT consulting uh, for as a, as a job that that paid for all the flying that I used to do sort of privately. Um, along the way, I started doing more sort of flying as part of work, you know, for some interstate travel and so on, just to, you know, have a bit of fun. And uh, especially if I was going to places that weren't sort of a capital city, it was actually cheaper, easier and faster to get in their own aeroplane. So I always maintained my, 
my multi-engine instrument rating and, and you know, been an IFR pilot for many years. So, yeah, that's really sort of how I got started and, and so on. So, you know, over that time, I had a, a multi-engine instrument rating um, and then the, the commercial licence. I've also flown, you know, lots of different singles and so on and then sort of settled into I wasn't flying much. Um, and so rather than rent different types of aeroplanes, depending if you know you're going by yourself or you've got four people or six people or whatever, I kind of settled on flying Bonanzas um, so that, yes, it would cost me a little bit more. My thinking was that I'd be always flying the same type. Um, it would do, you know, get you there pretty quick, um, carries up to six people if you needed to. Um, and I had access to... Um, ready access to uh, a couple of them. So um, either at Lilydale Airport, we'd still have a bunch of bananas, or there was um, some at uh, Moravan I could hire as well. And because of that, um, and I'd only be flying sort of 50 to 100, maybe 50 hours a year, so not much. Mm, yeah. And, um, but always flying the same aircraft meant that you were comfortable with it and you know flying was enjoyable rather than you know jump from type to type yeah, to type. and you're looking for everything in the plane going well where is yeah, this exactly. thing and-, <laughs> um, and along the way joined the bonanza society you know the type club and all awesome. that sort of stuff and met a whole bunch of people and it's been really great and i'm still a still a yeah member of the the organization to this day bonanzas are very cool planes so uh, they are, right. you know, they 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 really are. They handle really nicely. They've got very well harmonised controls, and yeah, they go quick, you know, reasonably quick. Sort of one fifty five, one sixty knots. You know, you can fit up to six people depending on the models. You know, newer ones are actually very heavy, so it's not really six seaters anymore. But uh, yeah, comfortable. My wife loves them. Um, when I met her in two thousand and five, I I flew her to New Zealand and back in a Bonanza. Wow, that would have been cool. Um, which, yes, is a great trip. Highly recommend anyone doing that because, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. How, how do you go about doing that trip? What, what's it look like? Um, just planning, you know, flight planning, lots of flight planning. Mm. So the long, you know, it's, it's a bunch of two or three-hour legs if you go via sort of go from Port Macquarie to Lord Howe, which is a bit over two, Lord Howe to Norfolk, which is three hours, and then it's three and a half from Norfolk down to New Zealand um, and yeah flew VFR was in sort of February March the weather was great and then flew up and down New Zealand Wow. Um, my wife's originally from New Zealand so we're visiting friends and family of hers and so on so um, weather was stunning especially when we're down in the South Island around the mountains we oh, had yeah. you know just beautiful days which was really good because uh yeah, nothing prepares you to actually fly around those mountains when you've uh, never done it before. Yeah, we are actually talking about that last week on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we are talking to Hitch from uh, Australian Flying and he's like, yeah, you don't want to end up a disappointing smear on the side of one of those mountains. Uh, no, no. So, um, yeah, we didn't have to worry about sort of finding the right valley to fly up and all that sort of fish because we just flew over the top and just enjoyed the view. Good, it, was yeah. just, it was stunning. It really was. And yeah, highly recommend getting out there and doing such things that the whole thing to organize was 
really easy, like the New Zealand um, CAA and so on are really easy to deal with and everyone was always willing to help. Um, and you just sort of followed the followed the usual rules you would fly with. I had a briefing from someone at, at one of the aerodromes when we first arrived just to see if there was much differences, but it really isn't. So, um, And since then I've flown in the US and other places as well, but yeah, so... Whereabouts have you flown in the US? Um, I lived for four and a half years in Denver, Colorado. Oh, cool. So mid-2005 to uh, December or November last year. So um, so Denver is at 6,000 feet on the sort of the foothills, the Rocky Mountains. And, uh, yeah, that was an introduction into uh, the world of density altitude. So mm. in summertime where the outside temperature is around 30, 35 degrees in Denver. You know, the density altitude is somewhere close to nine or 10,000 feet. It's <laughs> crazy. So the, the runway at the airport where, where I used to fly out of has a 10,000 foot runway, so about three and a half kilometres, and you really needed it. Over there, I used to fly a DA-40, and uh, it would use a good three and a half, four thousand 4,000 feet of runway Whoa. to get off the ground and then have... <laughs> Very little rate of climb. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he'd never, never, the thing would never ever be full rich. Like he'd always lean on the ground and the best power to actually take off. And you'd see occasionally people try and take off and you can tell they were from the lowlands because they'd be <laughs> struggling. The thing would be too rich and they'd be have no rate of climb at all. And wow. You're elbowing your friend and you're like, you're like, oh, lowlanders. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, at the holding point of every runway, there'd be a digital readout of the current density altitude just to remind. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then in winter time, you know, when the temperatures are around in the single digits or low teens, you know, performance was a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But still, you were, you know, you knew you were at altitude. And then the mountains just to the west, you know, rise to fourteen and a half thousand feet. So yeah, it'd be amazing flying around there, though. Yeah, yeah, totally different those to New Zealand. New Zealand, the mountains are newer, so it's much more up and down, uh, while the Rockies are older, um, so a bit more rounded, you know, bit, a bit more weathered and so on. Still stunning. Um, and then in autumn, autumn or fall, um, <laughs> all the leaves would change colours and it was absolutely stunning. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Very, very cool. Mm. So you're currently flying a Bonanza? No, no. At the moment, I actually fly Cirrus. Oh, right. Awesome. So I sort of um, I did a transition in Brisbane in 2009 to the SR20, and because they wouldn't let me rent an SR22 because of way too high performance. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. It's someone who comes from Bonanza, they're very similar, like the engines the same and so on. So it was all a bit weird, but anyway. That's funny. But yeah, I did that, and then in 2013, I sort of started to do the transition to the SR22 down at Moorabbin. Um, and I've flown them pretty much ever since. Mm. Um, I like this. There's a few things I really like about the Cirrus one. It's a bit faster. So it's probably got 15 knots on the Bonanza. Uses a little bit more fuel, but not much. Um, they have a parachute. So that has some appeal now that I've got, you know, a family and so on. Um, and I've even had my now 13 year old daughter do the sort of caps training in the simulator. So she's, oh, she's done cool. everything she knows and she knows exactly what needs to be done to pull a chute and all that sort of stuff. If, yeah. if something to happen to me, um, 
you know, I mainly fly the G3s and above. So with the Garmin G1000, it's got a fully integrated cockpit panels and navigators and autopilots and all that sort of stuff. And as a computer programmer, it's uh, second nature just to get in the aircraft, program it up and have it fly and do, you know, the harder work and you then just manage the manage the systems as you fly along. Totally. Um, so, you know, and, you know, there's fixed gear, so less kind of stuff to worry about and, and you know, I'm not going to land at wheels up and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they're, they're nice little machines actually and, yeah, and now our, you know, if you buy a new one, you get our software with them as well. Which really? Is fantastic. Well, there you go. Yeah, in, cool. in, a, in Australia and New Zealand, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Which is, yeah, really neat. Mm. That's pretty cool. It kind of the parachute thing's pretty pretty amazing, hey? It's also like Garmin Autoland, which is now a thing, and that, like, freaks I, me I don't out. Think, I don't <laughs> think the Autoland is on the SR series. It is on the jet. Yeah, on the um, Vision Jet. Um, but it is a pretty amazing kind of technology. So between the that and the parachute, you know, it's a system that works and works well and saves people lives. And I don't people have a thing about it, but you know, I'm for for you know using technology to to solve problems. You know, I can I can land an aircraft in a field if I needed to. But and the other thing is, that, you know, I've done so much night flying, say between here and Melbourne and Sydney. You know, if something was going to happen in the Bonanza at night over the mountains, you kind of there's not many options. Parachute, you just pop the parachute and float on down, and you know you live to see another day. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. Unless you've got fields below you and you know super clear places to land in an emergency, you know your only option is really dropping down. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, yeah, that's also the interesting thing. I guess the Garmin Auto Land, the only benefit in something like that is if you as a pilot become incapacitated and you've got a passenger with you who can you know set it off and then the plan lands lands itself or if you're a um yeah single pilot or single crew and there's no one else with you and then it detects that you're incapacitated and lands itself actually for people who don't know what that is have a look at what that is because <laughs> it might be some listeners that are like hang on are you guys talking about the plane landing itself well yes it does <laughs> which is crazy and the thing, yeah, finds the nearest or goes to the nearest runway and lands on it. It's really quite amazing. Yeah. And even in the newer Cirruses, if you're flying above 10,000 feet and you haven't pressed a button for so long, it starts prompting you. All and right. then if you do nothing, then it'll actually take you down to 10,000 feet where hopefully you'll come good. So it's uh, preventing in hypoxia and, and sort of unconsciousness that results. So. Yeah, wow, there's some amazing stuff that's coming out. Really nifty technology in these new aircraft. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's insane. Which leads us to, speaking of technology, so what's Avplan? Uh, Avplan EFB, that's our uh, electronic flight bag software, EFB. Now, this was a, 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 it comes from an idea, it was almost exactly 10 years ago when the um, Apple announced the iPad. And when I heard about this device, I thought, hey, this would be really neat as a replacement for the kneeboard that I used to take flying. Mm. So when I'd uh, go flying, I'd have um, this same kneeboard. On one side, I'd clip the flight plan that I'd produced, you know, what the mission of the day was. And then on the other side, I'd have the maps and charts and approach plates and so on. 
And I thought, hey, it'd be great to have this tool that did all your flight planning and then you'd take it in the cockpit and would have all your maps and charts and things, have your flight plan, it would know where you were going and sort of manage itself and do all those sort of data and information management things that you do as pilots and uh, get you to your uh, – help you get to your destination. So that's where it started and I, I had the uh, ability to sort of start work on it myself and produced a prototype in about nine months, I think, that had maps and things and basic flight planning and stuff. And I showed it to a couple of people and they're like, oh, this is – this is really clever. I think people would pay money for this. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Well, I'll release it as a product. So over that, that there was probably then another nine months or so of of work to actually get a product that was remotely releasable. And uh, the first version was released in August 2011. And it was pretty average, to be honest. <laughs> it did you know, weight and balance and, and performance calculations and file flight plans and had all the maps and things. And it, you know, if you thought the way I thought, then you, people could use it. Um, but if <laughs> actually the way I thought, you were kind of lost. Um, yeah, the manual was about, you know, five times longer than if you had to have all the charts with you or something. Like that. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, no, but people really got behind it from day one. And back then, we had to pay, or we still do, pay air services to license the maps and things, which is quite a significant sum. It's, you know, five figures. Wow. And my wife's like, you better make this money back in a year <laughs> or it's, you know, that's it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Anyway, we, we did that in the first six weeks, eight weeks or something. We made wow. the money. I'm like, oh, well, this is pretty good. So, <laughs> yeah, and lots of feedback from people um, and we got, you know, I got better at writing software that people could actually understand how to use and, yeah, lots of oh, – I had a day job through all this as well. So um, a lot of late nights and early mornings and so on and so on. But, yeah, it just kept plugging away. Um, it was really – it didn't feel like a job because there was all these people that were really supportive, um, really got behind the project and – and you know, got us to where we are today. So that's pretty cool. Along this journey, we um, we've grown steadily ever since. You know, those that sort of bit over nine years ago now. Did you have some sort of consultation process with pilots to sort of uh, refine the product and get it beyond that sort of stage of <laughs> only you understanding it? Or um, to start with, um, I had a a small group of sort of testers and so on that were all pilots. Um, before the product was released and we even picked up one or two subscribers as well before the product was even launched um, that we'd set up you know I'd set up the website and people started buying it (laughs) even though it wasn't finished (laughs) just from the the concept that they really they really like the concept that shows the the (laughs) desire for it hey (laughs) exactly Um, and then since then you know we've had you know, the, the core group of testers has expanded quite a lot. And then, uh, yeah, we just have a lot of feedback with the, that we track. You know, I think we've got a list of outstanding items around a 1,000 long um, yeah, wow. that we're slowly – we slowly work through. Um, it's when we 
you know, we visit bits of the app and sort of renovate it and add new features and so on, and that's where we kind of combine everyone's ideas and so on into into that component and then go on to the next thing and, and you know, iterate, iterate, iterate. That's, that's just what we do. I think back in the early days, you know, we had a, like a two-weekly sort of release schedule. So a release every two weeks, um, we did like one was a bug fix release and one was a feature release. Um, it's we've we've gone away from that a little bit, um, just a, sort of a lower a slower tempo, but which uh, fits in with all the other things that we do. So you know, this is not just the only product anymore. We've got you know, Airplane EFB on Android. We've got uh, a drone planning website called OK to Fly. We've got Command Flight Planner, which is a Windows-based flight planning tool, and then we've got you know other things in development as well. So you know we've uh, yeah we're not a, a one-trick pony anymore. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I imagine it takes a lot of uh, sort of like um, you know people to be on top of all that stuff. Is your team quite big? Yeah, we're now um, we're now at eight eight sort of members of the team. Um, we. Because we're either we're all working remotely because we're based in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're currently in lockdown 2.0, so we're all working. And then we've got more team members that are spread around Australia. Um, so uh, we now almost do the Brady Bunch on Zoom. So we've just <laughs> just got one more hole to fill, and we've got uh, we've got that whole thing covered. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a mixture of developers. Um, support people, marketing, you know, documentation, so on and so on. So, you know, um, everyone does more than one thing just to keep across, um, you know, how the, how the business works so that uh, yeah, if, if someone can't work for whatever reason, especially in this sort of COVID-19 world, you know, if something to happen to someone, then, you know, we need other people to be able to, jump in and keep the thing moving yeah i think it's like that with small businesses in general you sort of need everyone to sort of be across a few different things and sort of really pull the thing forward yeah and as the founder um you kind of find that you're the one that does everything else (laughs) so i've been trying to take an active role in the last 18 months to really get everyone in the team across what i do so that even i I'm not uh, critical anymore, which is good. When you first released Plan, was there sort of a hesitance for people to adopt this kind of technology? It sounds like you had a lot of um, support, but were there some people that are like, that's never going to happen, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, there was, um, but they were drowned out by the people who, who leveraged the, the technology and saw the value in it. Um, and Australia was one of the faster adopters in, in in aviation circles for whatever reason um is it was it a combination of just the size of the country so that if you had to have all the maps and charts and things it takes up you know a lot of cockpit space between wax mm. vtcs and vncs and so on you know i'm not sure exactly what it was but australia really sort of got on board very quickly um, and then the regulator itself, like CASA itself, they were alert but not too alarmed um, about that at all. Um, they were 
they weren't as hesitant as you would expect. Yeah, right. And like some regulators we deal with around the world still are. So you can't really fault them either. So um, people sort of got on board really quickly. I think 2012, 2013, you had some newer devices. So the second gen iPad was, which was lighter and much faster than the first gen iPad. And uh, it really worked well on that platform and so on and so on. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey. That's for sure. So what did you need to do to get approval from someone like Casa? Yeah, so they were really helpful, to be honest, um, the people we deal with. And uh, they were cons- their main concern was that a pilot would, would always have access to the data that they need in a format that could be used. And that essentially is what the certification that we have is all about. And... You know, I jokingly say it's all about garbage in, garbage out. So we get the garbage from Air Services Australia, being, you know, <laughs> the MAPS and the URSA and DAPS and so on, and we make sure that all of that content goes on the iPad all the time and it's always available. So, And that's all it is. It's about documenting all our internal processes and procedures to make that happen. And then, you know, safety management systems and all this sort of other rubbish, but essentially it's all about documenting and having a repeatable data process and you know how we deal with errors and admissions and all that sort of rubbish so luckily for me and my team at the time we had a background in corporate IT which is a lot of boring old documentation processes and procedures and so on and so on and so on so all of that actually came relatively naturally to us Um, but also the way that we tracked requirements so making sure that CASA gave us a checklist of all these things needed to cover off so you know not only did we do it but we produced something in the IT world called a traceability matrix so from requirement to where it's met in the documentation so we could actually sit quickly and go boom 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 then it's all covered off done and we didn't put anything extra in there um, the danger with any documentation um, that needs to be uh, approved by CASA is that if you start putting too much information, you, you start to build procedures on the procedures on the procedures. Yeah, right. Um, overly complex. Um, so it's, I guess it's like achieving the requirements. No more. Just make sure it's very clear, you know, systematic to whatever requirements are necessary. Precisely. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's all it was. So we achieved, achieved that certification in sort of August, September 2013. So we would have been, what, two years old at that point. So prior to that, um, Airplane was a, uh, a not-for-use-for-in-flight navigation, so you couldn't use it as a paper chart replacement, so you had to still carry your maps and things. And then after that time, an iPad and your you're good to go. We always recommend you carry two devices just to um, have a bit of redundancy, um, especially if you're going long distances. Like if you're going today, it's a beautiful day here in Melbourne. If you're going to go on a local flight, you know, maybe your iPad's just fine because you know your way home to the airport, you know, the frequencies and all that sort of rubbish. So yeah, if something to happen to your device, it goes flat or whatever, you're A-OK. But uh, if you're going to go and fly to Perth, you probably want to carry two devices. So what Avplan products do you currently offer? Are there any country-specific subscriptions? 
Yeah, so we we have different subscriptions for different countries. We support Australia, um, New Zealand, United States, Europe, the Middle East, and then some other bits of Asia and the Pacific and so on. Um, and each sort of area has a different subscription just to, because the, the royalties and things we pay on data and all sorts of other things are different. Um, and the feature set is slightly different as well. Um, the end goal with our plan is that you should be able to plan a flight and go flying with it anywhere in the world. And we're most of the way at, at doing that, um, but we're just, you know, slowly expanding our operations as as we see fit. We're not trying to do too much too quickly. Yeah, uh, we, we continue to grow quite strongly, you know, about 25, 30% a year. So um, that's about right for us. That sort of fits our operating model. Um, so we'll just keep expanding at that rate. So. And there's different subscription levels depending on, say, if I'm just doing VFR as well as um, an IFR? Yeah, yeah. So there's, like in Australia, we have sort of three tiers. We've got a VFR, a VFR Pro and an IFR Premium package. And we have different, you have different data. Obviously, you don't get um, some of the instrument procedures and things with the VFR subscription. But we've also got different feature sets in there as well. So um, as you start flying more complex aircraft and you need more complex flight planning, um, that's where we get into the, the more sort of premium tiers and so on. Um, but, yeah, start with a you know VFR subscription for about $109, uh, which is excellent value given you get all the maps and ursa and all that sort of stuff much cheaper than buying the books oh yeah yeah it's like <laughs> a tenth of the price yeah and does a vfr1 say eyes out buddy when you're looking down at your <laughs> ipad <laughs> yeah well, it should um we we do actually have a, a some uh, quite a few features in there where the app starts to talk to you and that is to get you to stop looking at it and ah uh, yeah um look out the window and so on. So it tells you to turn to a different heading or change frequency and all that sort of stuff. So you're not having to look at your device the whole time. That's cool, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, it was a part joke, but it's actually good that you do have that. <laughs> Segwayed into yeah. Yeah, some, of the, some of the features. Quite quite nice. Um, so if I'm about to go on a VFR flight, walk me through the steps in how I implement AvPlan. So what do I need to do? How do I use it? Oh, the best place to start is to actually download it on your That's device. A good one. So go to the app, app Store or Play Store and download it. It's a free download and it'll work for months for free. You download the app. Um, it, it prompts you to do some things when you first run it. Um, once you get to that point, probably the best thing to start with is actually download the maps and things that you need. So they're available when the device is offline. Even to this day, we get contacted by people who take the thing into the air for the first time and they don't have the information they need because it's not downloaded. Oh, yeah. So you go into our sort of data download section, tap on the bits of Australia you want to download, it saves on the device, and, yeah, from that point, it, it, it's actually a, a usable electronic flight bag. So from there, you would um, go through the library of aircraft and create a profile for the one that you, for the aircraft that you're flying. So be it a Piper Warrior or a Cessna 172 or whatever. You can then create a flight plan just by tapping on the map. So if you want to go to Moravan, you know, you tap on Moravan, add that to our plan, tap on where you want to go, say Bensdale, 
tap on the map, draws a line. You can then rubber band it, sort of drag and drop waypoints and things to go around airspace and do whatever. Airplane will prompt you and show you active restricted areas and all that rubbish. Or if you're like, uh, that's an eight-hour journey and you're in a Cessna 172, that's probably not going to happen <laughs> without Possibly, a stop yes. there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, can add, you can add fuel stops and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and then um, file a SAR time or an or a IFR plan with relative ease, actually. Yeah. Um, mm. It's designed to be able to, so you can quickly run through sort of a, a, a briefing planning process re- relatively quickly. We've got a, a, a like a tab in the app called planning and it, it's, it's a workflow from top to bottom. So you start at the top with the new plan. It's got weight and balance, fuel planning, briefing, filing and, and fly. So it's a, uh, you start at the top and work your way down um, and you come out at the bottom with a flight plan, you know, in minutes. Um, and now we have people using it from, you know, flying RAOs, you know, recreational aircraft to, you know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, the Australian Army, um, Australian Air Force, a bunch of regional airlines recently for have come on board as well so you know awesome. using the, the planning features and then taking the thing in the air so there you go and so when you're submitting a SAR time and stuff you can easily cancel it as well so you're not leaving it <laughs> leaving it hanging out there yeah it, it will uh it does two things one is that it reminds you to cancel it that's good <laughs> and, and we do things like create a calendar entry in your calendar for your SAR time oh, that's cool with the, with the phone number to call so that then it synchronizes from your iPad maybe to your phone or, or mm. whatever. So uh, you've got a reminder. Because I was – I'm always forgetting to cancel SAR time. So <laughs> I obviously started does. flying before the time of mobile phones. So you would get home and the briefing office would be trying to call you and all that sort of stuff, trying to find out where you are. And they've already <laughs> rung the airport to see if the airplane was parked there and you just feel like an idiot. Um and I've done that countless times. So, yes, SAR time warnings were were something that we implemented very early on. Um, and then you have the ability to cancel it or extend it in the app and those kind of things as well. So. Awesome. Before they call the uh, search and rescue out for you. Exactly. So we're talking a bit about this before. Um, technology kind of seems to always change. Like you're saying when the iPad 2 came out, it gave you sort of more options and everything was a bit lighter and easier to load. Um, how do you keep up with the changes? Do they allow you to implement more features and stuff and give you sort of more flexibility with the product? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a great question. Um, so early on, we were somewhat constrained by the devices. There was only so much we could do with the horsepower that was available in CPU and memory and battery power and that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, probably in the last few years, most of those constraints have really melted away so that the processing power in the top of the line iPad is faster than a, or as fast as a like a laptop. Um, it's got lots of memory. Um, battery life is is fantastic. So we're now at a point where we can pretty much do whatever we could possibly want to do, um, except fly the plane with it, maybe. Well, exactly. So, so we're really lucky now that we've got in both the new 
iPads and and the new Android tablets that we have so much processing power available that we can really do some smart stuff. And at the same time, all the, the way that we gather and process data and, and build additional data sets um, mean that we really can enrich both the briefing planning process and the in-flight experience as well. Um, so some of the things, what I mean there is like we process NOTAMs and produce graphics out of these NOTAMs, things like military low jet routes and drone operating areas and so on where um, they're depicted um, in NOTAMs as text-based, lat long, whatever's, no one has any idea where they are. So we uh, have this sophisticated um, machine learning algorithm that goes and learns how these um how to depict these graphically, and then we we can show them on the in the EFBs to, to make um, planning and and avoiding these areas in flight really easy. That's cool. And then you know things like where, where all the cranes are and stuff, and depicting them on the map and all this sort of stuff. Because we have a lot of pilots flying around, sort of helicopters and so on at low level, so they need to need to know these sort of information. And then it's the um, yeah, having these conversa- weird conversations that come up with people with very interesting sort of use cases for their flying, be it survey work or drones or, or whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's really, really quite interesting. So these days you've just got sort of more implementation that can be, uh, with like NOTAM, sort of dis- displaying NOTAM information and stuff and uh, even weather and stuff like that. Is that something that's displayed um, on the current versions? Oh, yes, yeah. So... You know, for the first the first release of Airplane even had a weather radar. Oh yeah, right. Um, overlay. Um, so weather is a key component to a um, a product such as ours. So we have a bunch of different um, weather options that that are available. You got the radar, satellite imagery, lightning, and some other sort of forecast products around ceilings and visibility and so on. Um, we then combine that with um, overlays of actual weather, so metas and so on, with a bunch of like coloured dots on the charts, cool. and that kind of stuff. So you can get a really quick and accurate picture of what the weather's doing. Plus, using a network of weather cameras, you know, we've got that data, so you can actually look and see what the weather's doing mm-hmm. in certain places. And yeah, it's. Um, and then we've got some other stuff planned that I can't really talk about, but uh, yeah, we're. It, that rely on some more sort of back back end processing stuff that we're doing. So, so I can't press you for some new features or oh, we, products that you might be releasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we've we've got a we got a bunch of stuff in in the work. A lot of what we do is um, platform agnostic, uh, so that uh, we can sort of write once and then we can use it on iOS, on the Apple platform, and then Android and potentially others in the future. Um, so, yeah, we're uh, we're doing a lot of work around re-implementing, or as we improve things, as we go and renovate stuff. Uh, that's what I call it when we go and sort of revisit a part of the app. You know, we we rewrite it in a way that's sort of more sort of platform independent, and so on. So one of those things we're doing at the moment is weight and balance. So oh, cool. completely rebuilding that, um, so that you can have multiple profiles. Loading profiles for an aircraft um, and a uh, 
lateral weight and balance for helicopters and a few other things like that. And we've also redone the way that we track like the, the state of an aircraft, as in, um, you know, if you're flying or not flying versus, you know, and, and what part of the flight you're in, are you taxiing on the ground, Are you have you just taken off, have you departed, have you arrived and that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. So we're... There's actually quite a sophisticated algorithm there that uh, now tracks all that um, and records. You know, we're even recording um, for you use later, like what runway you departed on and landed on, and oh, that's cool. all this sort of. And then we're using the tracking information that, if you use that that pro that service, is to track your location in real time. And if you happen to land, we're working on some stuff so that if you happen to land off a runway for whatever reason or at airport, um, that, you know, we have some alerting in there as well. So that... Um, like, are you a bush pilot? Why for yes and for no? <laughs> well, yeah, I, we've basically worked out there are a bunch of people that, that land all sorts of interesting places. Yeah. <laughs> um, a bunch are helicopters, you know, with our the SAR and EMS helicopters that are customers in Australia and New Zealand. You can see what they're doing. But then there's other people that fly... Yeah, you know, GA aircraft and who land like helicopters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. Mm. And uh, yeah, you know, one of the many projects that we're working on. You know, there's never a shortage of stuff we can we can do. We, we let, let's just say it never. We never get up in the morning and go, got nothing to do today. <laughs> of course, I think the more complex something gets as well, and the more people use it, opportunity arises for altering things and you know there's more stuff that could go wrong but there's more things that could happen you know there's more things you could implement you know yeah precisely yeah and we're we're doing a lot of work internally just to streamline the product and get it into a point that's you know more maintainable and testable and all that sort of stuff so you probably see or our customers see probably a tenth of really what goes on these days be it our back-end systems that are monitoring the weather and no dams and all that sort of stuff and doing real-time alerting to devices to you know our software engineering efforts and testing and dealing with new operating systems from apple or different data releases and there's a lot of things that sort of go together to provide this sort of seamless happy experience for our, our pilots yeah they're like this looks so easy so simple and you're like yeah okay sure <laughs> yeah and it's one of those things if you knew how complex it would have been you probably would ne- i would never have started so oh yeah you know when, when you see all the range of what we do and you know how much work it was to get there especially in the early days when it was just me you would never have started because it would put you off but of course, yeah. You know, some of us are foolish and, <laughs> and do it. That's where you end up. Yeah, exactly. So I myself am a student pilot and every single thing I do in training currently revolves around paper charts, pencils, performance charts with copyright dates that literally say 1978 on them for like Piper Warriors. Yep. <laughs> do you see a place for EFBs in flight training? I Like for me personally, I'm like, I don't know how we're not learning this because we definitely all should be learning this, like even at least alongside it. But um, what what's your view on that? And if so, do you think, how do you think it should be implemented? Yeah, well, we have a number of large flight schools in New Zealand using Avplan and they do all their training with, an EFB, so there's no paper in their syllabus at all. That's awesome. 
In Australia, we're not. I'm not aware of anyone who's done that as yet, but it will happen. However, there's many schools these days that teach EFBs as part of the syllabus as of what they teach students. So, yes, they learn initially to do everything on paper, paper charts, and do you know, manual flight plans and all that sort of stuff. But then they introduce EFBs so that they can then show the student a how to use them but also how not to use them what they're good for yeah. um what to be aware of you know things simple things like downloading the data you need and so on um and then they still do the flight tests and they still do that with with paper so i'm very supportive supportive of that model um however as time passes i can see people um just using efbs completely during training um, given that once they complete their training they're most often going to be using an efb anyway yeah. um, and not paper-based charts uh, you can do things everything with our plan can be almost replicating what you would do in a paper chart so you know there's a ruler for measuring distances you can write notes with your pencil you can plot fixes and all this sort of stuff as you would do with a, a paper chart. The only thing is you've got this aircraft that sits on the map. However, you can also disable that. You can turn the GPS off and then you wouldn't see where you are and have to really sort of rely on your uh, map reading skills and so on. So mm. it will happen that EFBs will just be used completely during training. I guess it is still early days, so um, I guess we'll see how it, how it sort of unfolds. I, in particular, I guess through my very limited experience as a student, I'm like, well, if, I'd kind of really want to use this after I finish my studies. So I feel like if I don't get taught, it's almost more dangerous not being taught how to use it uh, safely as well um, or to its maximum ability, you know, so learning paper and then going onto that in my own time. I, I sort of wouldn't mind some supervision. Yeah, know. precisely. Yeah, look, it's really important. Like in the, the early days of EFBs was like the early days of GPS. Um, people driving off piers <laughs> well yeah and flying sort of through airspace and things just blindly following a gps that they didn't know how to use mm. um and there was many instances of um control area violations just from people blindly going direct to on a gps in their aircraft and off they flew when i learned gps didn't exist we learned to use this technology, you know, usually by just getting in the aeroplane and flying and then trying to work out how to use it. And we had plenty of people with EFBs doing exactly that. So, you know, we'd get phone calls to our support line from people saying, oh, your product's not working. And it's like, yeah, what did you do? Well, I just downloaded it this morning, then I got in the aeroplane and went, you know, and now I'm flying to so-and-so, you know, you know, three or four hours away. And, like, you didn't do anything like download data. No, no, no. Now, it should be really easy to use. Isn't it? Well, you got to understand the technology a little bit before you get in a plane and just sort of start heads down, totally. tapping on buttons and all this sort of stuff. It's really um, – so, yeah, doing that under supervision with an instructor um, is super important. And we always encourage people that, that introduce EFEs into their flying is to do it gradually. So take your paper map still, you know, do your flight planning with your EFB and then fly with – what you're used to and then slowly introduce it into your cockpit workflow so you you remain comfortable with with your flying and sort of don't sort of lose situational awareness by diving into this new device with some new software and 
and not fully understanding how everything fits together. So. Totally, yeah. So more broadly, how do you see the future of digital technologies in the cockpit? What exciting things do you think uh, the distant future may hold for us pilots? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. So we we see more integration between the aircraft and the EFB. So um, more sort of open interfaces that we can get more information from the aircraft and get an understanding of what it's doing and how it's performing that we can then, in our non-certified world, um, react faster and and sort of leverage newer newer technologies to um, to deal with that data. So that would be things like you know interfacing with engine and other avionics and so on. And we've been doing some projects with even in the sort of large aircraft space with uh, General Electric around the seven thirty seven FMS and interfacing with that and some other large um, and that's something that will be um, a big part of what we do in the future. The other one is um, internet access. So there will be a time soon where um, you'll get ubiquitous internet connectivity, so no matter where you are, if you're in the cockpit. Um, so that gives us more um, capability around in-flight tracking, alerting, monitoring, um, backups, um, all sorts of stuff like that. If we can rely on sort of constant, constant contact um, between the device and at a mothership, you know, we could do better feeding of sort of weather and traffic information and ATC instructions and all this sort of stuff over yeah. this sort of um, constantly available networks. And that'll be. A few years away, it's it's much closer than it ever has been. So things like Starlink, and which is Elon Musk's sort of network of the internet satellites, and there's a few, there's going to be a few of those. Um, we'll see that in GA relatively soon, and it will really revolutionise what we can deliver, because we can be guaranteed of delivering the data to people's devices rather than be via or other networks, which is more of a best effort. And we spend a lot of time dealing with sort of caching and pushing data to make sure it's available if the device goes offline and mm-hmm. so on. So that disappeared, you know, we'll be able to provide a lot better service. Um, Even just thinking now, I, I sort of imagine that there might be a future when that bandwidth and that sort of communication, ongoing communication exists. You could have that dialogue backwards and forwards, even in the case of, say, an emergency, like a black box-related thing where it relays information back to the mothership, um, which then stores that information, you know, over a period of time, particularly if something goes wrong or something, then you can be relaying that sort of information back. Exactly, and we've been doing some of this already. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our stuff gets... We leverage it if there's a, been an accident or someone, so in post right accident analysis, which I really, that's a part of my job that I really dislike, to be honest. Mm. And then um, soon we'll be able to get an idea of, you know, how the person was interacting with the EFB, what were they looking at, you know. Um, So were they looking at a piece of information that wasn't really giving them what they needed, you know, and how do we improve that sort of, you know, does a document, you know, does an approach plate need amendment so it becomes clearer and so on because we can really soon we'll get to a point where we'll be able to track your eyes mm. of what you're looking at on the screen. So were you looking at the right bits, you know, 
where did you look at the NOTAMs that were applicable before flight or not and so on and so on. So, you know, we can really get an idea of how we can collectively as aviators improve our processes and to um, have more safe outcomes. Mm, totally. So back to you <laughs> and outside of the digital realm, what has been your most memorable flight so far? So I keep talking to everyone about this and uh, uh, Deborah Laurie first brought up this on, in one of our interviews going, uh, it could be the most nail-biting thing or the most fun or like exciting or scenic thing. So do you have one or the other or potentially both? Well, oh, I've, I have both. So <laughs> probably probably the best bit of flying I've ever done was a trip that I did with my now wife from Australia to New Zealand in the Bonanza. So, And of all that... Um, a particular flight in that trip from Queenstown that we flew out to Milford Sound and around Milford Sound and then up the coast on a beautiful day um, where the southern Alps are covered in fresh snow and all this sort of stuff. It was probably, you know, when you, when you look back and go, yeah, that was probably the best bit of flying I've ever done. Wow, yeah. That was it. Um, and then there's times where through nothing but stupidity, you know, you almost finish yourself off. So, yeah, one morning, um, yeah, made made a mistake, ended up sort of doing some scud running and almost took the top off a, uh, a large antenna. And I can still see it today, the guy wires disappearing past the wingtip at 100 and something knots, you know, oh, was not particularly smart. And yeah, that was one of the drivers. This was before airplane existed, was mm. to do this so I could, um, you know, have better sort of obstacle warnings and sort of bubble up. I think I think one of the things that we're focused on at the moment is providing the data that really matters, um, rather than everything all at once. Mm. Like a VFR chart is great, but half the time you don't need the information that's on it. But other times, you really need certain things to really stand out, like you're at lower level and you need to know about the obstacle that's rushing up you or whatever or the hill or, you know. And then uh, so we're looking at ways of providing just the relevant data at the right times to pilots. And that's, um, yeah, sort of our sort of big focus. And that came from, you know, personal experience, uh, not in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> That's scary. That definitely will wake you up. But we learn, you know. Totally. I was just, yeah, I was intimate rated, but it was just going to be easier if I got into this airport, visual, blah, blah, blah. Yep, that's how that's how accidents happen. Totally, yeah. So what would your dream flight you could take just for fun be? I love finishing with this one. Uh, Everyone's almost got the same answer, so this will be interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, ever since for years, I've always wanted to fly around the world. So I don't know if that's what everyone else says. Yeah, but, close. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I've met a whole bunch of people that have done it um, and I've helped some people do it like uh, Ryan Campbell and so on. We provided some assistance with his trip. Yeah, awesome. Um, and the trip that I did in New Zealand was really just that early step of can I do this sort of planning and ocean flying and all this sort of stuff to do such a trip. Then I got married and had kids and that all sort of went by the by. But I guess the one of the design goals of Airplane EFB is I should be able to use this when I fly 
aircraft around the world. In terms of actual flying, I've always wanted to fly helicopters. Almost got started in the early 2000s, but then I bought a house with the money, which was probably the smartest thing. Probably more wise. To be honest. (laughs) Um, Than helicopter flying lessons. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, there's... Um, in terms of dream aircraft, something like an albatross. Yeah, yeah, that's that you can <laughs> you can land anywhere, so water and land. That's pretty and, much the answer that you get. I remember <laughs> meeting meeting a couple oh, a few years ago now, flying theirs around the world, and they had basically decked out like a little mobile home, and it had a boat and some oh. motorcycles and stuff, and they were just slowly making their way around the world. And I thought, that's so yeah, cool. that's that's the that's the that's the go. I think that's definitely what I want to do. Totally. Um, and then, you know, you always dream of the further and higher and faster and all that sort of stuff. I've been lucky that, you know, I've flown you know, a range of different aircraft. Um, but, yeah, there's always something something interesting to to fly. And I think, you know, when when I win the lottery, I think, you know, I'll be ringing Seba Pilatus up and getting myself a PC-12 oh. or something like that. And I think that, yeah. that, you know, I've flown one from here to New Zealand a few years ago and that it's a great aircraft for that kind of thing, you know, for, you know, 13, 1,400 nautical miles, plenty of room, take you and another, fa- you know, out, my family and another family and there's a toilet. So my wife really loves that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. a good feature. <laughs> <laughs> so yes yeah pc12s are cool they're very cool yeah and you, they're perfect for australia you can take them anywhere yeah comfortable roomy you know they've got the cabin size of a king air and mm. relatively economical being single engine um lands 80 85 knots so reliable engine mm. yeah they're, they're a good piece of kit to be honest totally yeah it's funny i, I find that um after I've been asking this question quite a bit, a lot of ever, a lot of people's answers are the the seaplane thing and like just everywhere around the world. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there's something super alluring I think about seaplanes and just the freedom I think it gives you and you know the ability to you know land it wherever you want to land it, whether it be this lake or you know even a river or a, you know the ocean. And, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and you know we, we're an island nation. We're surrounded by lots of water so totally yeah to fly around the pacific in uh albatross or something in an albatross so yeah turbine with a turbine conversion because you want it to actually work yeah totally (laughs) (laughs) yeah cool well thanks for coming on the show and um yeah thanks for sharing Avplan with us and Avsoft um uh everything that you're doing and your sort of goals and you know what you wanted to do and a bit of your aviation experience and journey so far it's been really great yeah no worries chris thanks for having me on the show and i wish you all the best with with your flying when we can finally get back out there exactly uh, yeah thank you yeah look forward to seeing you in the skies sounds good and i'll be using Avplan i'm sure well thank you very much thanks for coming on okay no worries Thanks for listening to episode 9 of Up and Away. If you're thinking of giving Avplan a go, head to their website or search Avplan in the App Store on your device. Don't forget to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And I'll see you next week.